Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. All this week, we've been listening back on some of our favorite episodes of Forum, and today it's my interview with forest ecologist Suzanne Samard. Decades ago, when Samard set out to understand why forests would often heal themselves when left to their own devices, she uncovered early evidence that trees communicate with each other, lending mutual aid during times of duress. Through cryptic underground fungal networks, trees relay information, and old trees can discern which seedlings are their own and transmit nutrients to them. We'll talk to Samard about her work and the intertwined story of her family, chronicled in her new book, Finding the Mother Tree. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If you've driven the Avenue of the Giants or walked among California's towering redwoods or sequoias, you're probably familiar with that sense of wonder and calm that often comes with being in that cathedral of trees. And Suzanne Samard's new book has given us even more reason to be awed by them and other old-growth forest stands, as her book Finding the Mother Tree chronicles the series of discoveries she's made over three decades that trees communicate and take care of each other, especially the oldest among them. Welcome to Forum, Suzanne Samard. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate having you on. Wondering if you could start by taking us back to that moment in the mid-90s, when as a doctoral student, you and your colleague, Dan, first listened to a birch communicate, as you call it, with a Douglas fir. Can you describe that moment for us? Yeah. Um, I had We had set up this experiment a year in advance and allowed um, these little trees, there was a cedar, a birch, and a fir, to grow intermingled amongst each other um, with the idea or thinking that the birch and the fir would be connected together by a mycorrhizal network. And a mycorrhiza is, is what all trees need, all plants, in fact, most plants other than about five plant families uh, in the world. Uh, are obligate associates of these fungi. And the fungi um, take the photosynthate from the tree and use it to grow mycelium through the soil, picking up nutrients and watering and delivering it back to the tree. And this helps the tree survive and grow and reproduce. So in other words, it's essential for their fitness. 
And some of these fungi um, can actually connect trees together, even of different species. And I had done some preliminary work to show that birch and fir were connected. Um, and cedar, though, formed an entirely different kind of mycorrhiza, what's called an ector, or, or sorry, an uh, arbuscular mycorrhiza, which grows inside the root and doesn't, therefore doesn't connect with these ectomycorrhizas, which are associated with birch and fir, where they grow on the outside of the root tip. Anyway, so here we were with this one-year-old experiment. The seedlings were growing, and we had draped plastic bags over the birch and fir and uh, sealed them off and then injected different isotopes in each one. One was carbon-14 associated with CO2, and the other was carbon-13 associated with CO2. And the birch and fir had photosynthesized these isotopes so that we could trace where they went in the ecosystem. And I had this idea that they might move back and forth between the birch and fir uh, through these mycorrhizal networks. And so here we were, we were in the field, we had labeled the trees, and we were standing there with a Geiger counter wondering, did it happen? <laughs> and we just, you know, used the Geiger counter and we could tell that the, the seedlings that were labeled with carbon-14, the Douglas firs were indeed very hot with carbon-14, so they were radioactive. And so the moment of truth was, was the was the birch also radioactive? Or I think it was the other way around. But anyway, we held, held the Geiger counter up against it, and there was this faint, faint crackle. And at that moment, we knew, we knew that they were communicating through these below-ground networks. Wow. And so what you were trying to find out was whether or not you know, these Douglas fir were, I guess initially the question was, or what was often believed was that trees would compete with each other in a given environment. And you were trying to figure out if they were in fact collaborators. So by finding that they did communicate with each other through this, you know, network of fungi, you learned that they were in fact working together? Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that trees and plants compete as well. They, they're, you know, they need resources. And so, you know, if a tree is taller, so paper birch, for example, grows taller faster than Douglas fir. And so it can shade Douglas fir that's in the understory. And that we regard as competition for light. Um, so for sure, anything that's taller competes for light. Um, but I wanted to know whether or not at the same time, were they actually uh, sending signals back and forth? Like, were they, were they even maybe collaborating? And what I found out was that even as birch was shading out, shading Douglas fir, it was sending carbon over to Douglas fir. And the more that paper birch shaded Douglas fir, the more it sent to Douglas fir. And so it was mitigating this competitive effect. So essentially what, you know, that shadow of the birch canopy was doing to Douglas fir, it was really reducing its photosynthetic rate, its ability to fix sugars to grow. But um, paper birch was actually compensating for that. It was actually uh, subsidizing the Douglas fir for whatever shadow it was casting over it by sending it directly photosynthate below ground. And so it was creating this balance. Um, yeah, so it was, it's, it, the, the important message here is that um, these trees, they compete, yes, but they collaborate. They have these really sophisticated relationships that aren't just like one size fits all. They're, they're as nuanced and sophisticated and perceptive, I say, as our own relationships. Wow. And so you end up publishing these findings in Nature in 97, and, and the discovery is called the Wood Wide Web. Yeah. Can you talk about what that was like, what your hopes were? 
in that moment when you were able to get this work published? Yeah. So yeah, nature coined it, the paper, the wood wide web and put it on its, the front cover of its issue. And I was, you know, I was so young that I didn't understand the gravity of that decision, but it, it was, it was dis, it displaced the genome of the fruit fly, which was just discovered at the same time in 1997. In the magazine. Um, yeah. In the magazine. <laughs> um, but yeah, what I hoped was, you know, I had been working in the forest industry at that point for 15 years in industry and government, and they had enacted this, what's called a free to grow uh, policy, where the idea was that as soon as any kind of tree or plant that was considered uh, not wanted or a weed was 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 deleted from the ecosystem, it was sprayed or it was cut out with the idea that it would reduce its competitive effect and allow Douglas fir to grow, you know, big and fast and huge. Um, and I was actually really dismayed by this because. We were annihilating, you know, reducing the diversity in the forest, getting rid of these native plants. And, you know, I I had a sense from growing up in the forest, by studying forest for years, that these plants were essential in the succession of a forest, that they play different roles. You know, they they help heal the soil, they add nitrogen back to the back to the nutrient cycle, they bring water up from deep below. You know, they play important roles. And here we were really like just deleting that whole section or that whole period of time where the land heals it's like sort of like when you get a cut and you get a scab it's like ripping off that scab and hoping the skin heals over right away Um, so I I knew I felt this was wrong I had lots of evidence that what they were doing wasn't helping the forest already I had gathered I'd done lots and lots of experiments Um, and then this was a really like got at the mechanism of what I was seeing that that what we were doing was actually reducing the ability of this of this ecosystem to to work together to how be built on its relationships to find the balance that it needs to grow healthy and vigorously. Yeah, so this very thing that was helping the Douglas fir was what basically was being eliminated. <laughs> yeah. And and you were finding data that we're showing exactly how uh, the birch were helping the fur with the yeah. carbon that it essentially sent to it. It's a pretty incredible thing, uh, which is also why it's curious that such an important discovery as you chronicle ended up actually receiving some skepticism, especially as as time went on. You, you ran into some problems with your employer, the Forest Service. You found yourself mm-hmm. having difficulty you know, publishing more work after that, the scientific Mm -hmm. community was starting to question it. Can you talk a little bit about what happened after that article? Yeah, well, you know, I was, I was a government scientist, I'd gone back to do my PhD. And I was just, you know, I was, my goal, or my job was to support policy for for reforestation. And I was trying to do that job, you know, for the forest and for the government and create the healthiest forests or steward the healthiest forests we possibly could. But already in line was this was this big policy that, you know, was developed in the 1980s that had spawned this incredible herbicide spraying and brushing program that was costing the government millions and millions of dollars. And lined up with that were not just the policies, but the practices that were supported by industry, right? There were whole, you know, even like Monsanto was, you know, providing the herbicide, the, you know, the, there were brushing companies whose lives were dependent on doing this practice 
um, and people's re reputations and careers were vested in this policy. And so the backlash against this finding, uh, well, it grew, right? At first, they had just ignored it um, because they could. And, um, and then they I being, started- They being- They being know, the like... policymakers in government. Because what I, what I saw was the policy was driving practices and, and all they really needed to do was to change that policy that required these trees to be, they called it free to grow, as I said, and required that these trees, these conifers be free of these native plants. Um, free to grow into the sky. And, um, and that was the, the issue, right? So the, the, every, every single company had to meet this, this, this standard. Um, and it caused them to go in and brush out these plantations early on so that they were, could be rid of their, the oversight or rid of their responsibility. Um, and so as I got more media attention, and as I started speaking out more about the, the findings, the backlash increased to the point where it culminated kind of in this big field trip where we went out and we were, I was trying to show the policymakers, look, you know, sure, there's some places where competition is, is a big deal, but most places, it's just, it's just, it's just part of natural succession. And they were, they were infuriated that I would challenge this. And ultimately, as you said, you know, over the next few years, my opportunities kind of dribbled away. <laughs> they started um, having oversight over my journal articles that I'd already published, which is kind of unheard of. And, uh, and then, you know, government downsized and my supervisor, who was incredibly supportive of me, my direct supervisor, he said to me, you know, Suzanne, I think you should, you'd be better off to, to go to academia or somewhere else, because oh, wow. this is, this is pretty tough. And he was right. So. <laughs> and can you just remind us where you were quickly, we're coming up on a break at this time. I mean, you had made your discovery in British Columbia, right? And yeah, I was in Kamloops that I was centered in Kamloops, which has been in the news lately, which, um, yeah, hmm. um, yeah, it's sort of in the center part of the, of the province. We're talking with Dr. Suzanne Samar, Professor of Forest Ecology at the University of British Columbia. Her new book is Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. And we'll have more with Suzanne Smart after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Suzanne Samard's book, Finding the Mother Tree, chronicles the series of discoveries she's made over more than three decades about the ingenious ways that trees communicate and tend to each other. And we're talking with Dr. Samard right now. Her book, Finding the Mother Tree, also talks about her own life, which she says is as entwined as intimately as the parts of the ecosystem she's studying. What are your thoughts or questions about trees, how they communicate with each other, your relationship to them, 
Have you ever felt a wisdom or healing when visiting a forest? Have you thought about the science of plant communication and have a reaction to Suzanne Samard's work? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, and you can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Suzanne Smart, you know, one of the things that's so interesting as you talk about the backlash um, in the Forest Service from government and policy is that you, your family, made its living cutting down forests, right? I mean, generation after generation, and you were among the first of a new generation of women in the logging industry. Can you talk a little bit about, um, about that background? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in in what we call the inland rainforests of British Columbia. These are these are huge forests. They're a lot like the West Coast forests of Washington and Oregon, um, where there's massive Douglas firs, massive cedars, hemlocks, white pine. They're beautiful, diverse forests. And uh, and so I grew up on this, or I went spent a lot of time on this lake in the middle of of the province called Mabel Lake. And Mabel Lake was where the Samard family had settled back in the late 1800s. And they were horse loggers. So my great grandfather, my grandfather, my dad, my uncles were all horse loggers. And they would go up into this rainforest and my grandpa Henry, um, he he could do anything. (laughs) That's what my dad said anyway, (laughs) he could do anything. So he would go up with the horses, you know, and, and keep in mind, everything was built by hand, right? Like all the tools, the, all the, you know, the gear on the horses, the flumes that they shot the wood down to the lake below Mm -hmm. the water wheel where my grandpa generated electricity for the houseboats that he made by hand. Um, You know, so everything was slow and small, but they would go up in the bush each day and, and he would make a little map of, of the trees, you know, not maybe in a, in an acre and then he would say, okay, we're going to, we're going to, and he would map out where all the trees were. He said, we're going to take this white pine this week. And everything was slow. So it would take them a few days to fall one of these huge white pines. Or later on, they were taking smaller cedar poles to supply telephone poles for the telephone companies. Um, but, you know, it was only like a, a tree or two a week, or maybe a tree a day if they were smaller. Um, or a few trees a day. And so when you when I was in the forest with them, you know, watching as a little kid, um, you couldn't really tell like when you walk through later, you couldn't, I couldn't tell that that really they'd been there. I mean, I knew they had, but there were trees growing up in the little gaps that had been created by the logging. So hemlocks and cedars would come bursting out of the ground and just nestle and grow underneath the remaining old, old trees that were there. And so I saw the forest as this incredibly regenerative place that it just it just healed its wounds automatically. If you want to call them wounds, they were they were really just opening up to let a little light in to let the new forest regenerate. And that's how they did it. So, um, yeah, it was that's how I learned what forestry was. And that's how I learned how forests um, are so, you know, they just bounce back if they're given if they're not, you know, handled too heavily. And so what are the implications? There's that experience that you saw. There's this research that you learned about the way that that trees communicate and can help each other and take care of each other. Like, What is it that that you feel like this should be applied to with regard to, you know, the logging industry, to the way that we do cut down trees? 
Yeah. So just a couple things. So first of all, just hearkening back to that first experiment with the birch and the fir, um, in you know, one of the things that happened at that time, even though they were so, you know, annoyed with me, they did make a small change to the forest policy when I left the government. Um, and they said, oh, we're going to allow a few of these birch trees left to remain. But they didn't change the policy, right? And so that we still see this wholesale removal of these deciduous trees from the forest landscape. And even north of Prince George, which is the northern half of British Columbia, they're helicopter spraying the aspens up there to get rid of them for the same reasons, without understanding that these aspens are actually huge sinks for carbon. They're homes for woodpeckers and all kinds of birds. Um, they're a vital part of, of succession and, and carbon sequestration and biodiversity. And so here we're still in that old age, still doing that. So I want th that to change to say, okay, you know, you can look to see if the forest is okay, but don't, you know, make it a condition that you're going to get rid of all the native plants to say it's okay. So that's number one. The second thing is um, I went on to discover that, yeah, at the center of these forests are these huge trees that link together the whole forest because eventually we did make a map of what this network looked like below ground and we found that all the trees are connected together in these douglas fir forests and that at the center the nucleus of that forest are the biggest oldest trees we call them mother trees because it turns out that these these trees when we did a whole bunch of experiments trying to figure out what they do what why are they so important why are they so heavily linked it turns out that the seedlings um, that are growing up around these old trees when they shed their seeds they germinate they start to grow they tap into this vast 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 network of the old trees which is highly complex highly efficient at gathering resources and helping you know trees grow and so it turns out these seedlings were dependent on this network to establish and survive and their survival in our experiments went up by you know 40 percent which is important in these kinds of forests where when you have stress you know anything to help survival is important so anyway, so with respect to these old trees, they turn out to be, you know, the nucleus of the forest. And, and, you know, if you look at logging practices, that's the first thing they target, <laughs> or the big old trees, because they make the most money from them. And in modern forestry practices, it's not just taking or high grading the big old trees, it's actually clear cutting the entire forest, because that makes more money. Um, it's more efficient you know, it doesn't cost as much money to work around the remaining trees, um, and they can make money from the smaller ones too. But it turns out that this removal of these old trees unravels that network. And, um, and I'll just go on two more points about these yes. old trees, they store huge amounts of carbon. So, you know, researchers, in addition to me, have gone on to show that the biggest trees are these enormous uh, storehouses of carbon like in an in a forest of many aged trees they'll store you know over half of a single tree can store over half of the carbon on a site um and you know they also are homes to biodiversity like um as they get older they they provide more and more homes for all kinds of critters that depend on old growth forests right they don't survive in younger forests and so biodiversity is dependent on us keeping these old forests and when we when we deforest them that is the main cause of biodiversity loss worldwide we're getting some comments from listeners. I want to share a couple. This listener tweets, with coast redwoods, it's like they're holding hands underground in a communal group support root network. 
Robert writes, would your guest ascribe intelligence to trees? It's an interesting question. I It makes me think of the part in your book where you also talk about the wisdom of old trees in terms of their understanding of how to weather extremes and mm-hmm. how they pass on, I guess, for lack of a better word, that wisdom. Could, could you react to Robert's question about intelligence and also just talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just talk a little bit about the redwoods, which are magnificent forests. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're incredible forests. And I I visited them a a few times, and I'm absolutely in awe. And yes, I mean, they form these networks below ground, too. They form arbuscular networks. So it's a different type of fungus, but but they are all connected together as well including to the understory plants like the ferns and and the herbaceous the herbs in the understory they all form arbuscular mycorrhizas too so you have an incredibly networked forest down in the redwoods um yeah so so the second part of the question which was sorry sure well before before we go into it i'm gonna actually bring this this caller kelly in for a second because kelly i think is underscoring the point you're making about redwoods kelly thanks for joining us kelly from ojai thank you thanks for having me this is an amazing conversation so i'm excited to be here (laughs) well thanks for being here what's on your mind kelly you know, I wanted to touch on the uh, California Coast Redwoods and the energy that they bring, and I definitely feel wisdom. I have sat with redwood groves and solitary trees across the globe for the past couple of years, and I feel an exchange of love and energy coming from them. And then I lived in Humboldt County for a few years, too. And the larger trees, the ancient ones, they definitely hold the energy but they also have this wisdom and and they communicate not only with each other, but with us. Well, Kelly, thanks for that observation. Um, Suzanne Smart, I don't know if you have a reaction to that, but also, yes, yeah. this. So we were talking about wisdom. And also my question earlier was was about what you meant when you talked about how they have an understanding of how to handle extremes, which is so yes. important these days. Yes, yes. So, you know, some trees live to great, great ages, right? The bristlecone pines, they live to 5,000 years old. The redwoods, a thousand years. The cedars of the north, some upwards of 2,000 years. Um, you know, so they've they've been through a lot, right? Um, just think of the climatic fluctuations in our own lifetimes. You know, we've seen, we've seen, I've seen huge extremes. So they live through all that. And that, those extremes, that climate history is encoded in their genes. It affects, you know, the genet- their genetic sequences. And so in their seeds, they have the blueprint for how to survive through climatic change. Um, and, and so that those seeds are essential to us as and for us as we deal with the upcoming climate change, right? They have uh, all the, the instructions, basically, if you, if you will, in there of, you know, how to survive when, you know, heat waves come along, droughts come along. Um, when it gets really cold and you get this unusual frost, you know, some trees won't survive, but the ones that have those, that genetic code, they have that, that I call it wisdom. I mean, that is from 
you know, generations and generations before them of evolution. And, and that evolution is the wisdom of the trees. They also um, have information in their tree rings about, for example, they have isotopic signatures, natural abundance of carbon-13, uh, N15, which are naturally uh, prevalent in our environment in very, very minuscule amounts. And they tell us when we look at those, their isotopic signatures about the droughts they've been through, um, about how, how, you know, nitrogen has been cycling in that forest. Um, and so, and those tree rings also hold information about uh, like their width and their density, about what the competitive environment, the collaborative environment was like. So, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of information in a tree and that information is actually passed on to the next generations through germination and reproduction but even more than that we found that when an old tree for example is is get is sick or attacked by a beetle or infected by a fungus or or just maybe stressed out or maybe even healthy that they communicate that stress um, or that health to their neighbors and it's the communication is these are these signals that we think are carbon-based signals that actually cause or the the neighboring trees pick these signals up and they actually upregulate their own RNA <laughs> RNA which is uh, then codes for defense enzymes that help those trees defend themselves against whatever uh, insults might be in the environment hmm. and so it's not just a long long history in genes and and seeds and tree rings, but there's information that's being passed on in real time that is affecting the genetic uh, machinery in neighboring trees and themselves in, you know, at the, at the, at the very moment of that, of that event. Um, and so, yeah, is that, is that wisdom? Well, I don't, you know, wisdom is a word we ascribe to human beings. And, um, and a lot of people are offended when we use words like that to describe trees and animals. But really, you know, I mean, they're perceptive, they're receptive, they, they, they learn things, they pass on that learning to, to neighbors, they have memories, um, they, they, can, they can adapt and change and learn. Um, if that's not wisdom, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what is. You know, I'm also struck by how when you talked about how you mapped the, the fungi network that it almost um, resembled or that it did resemble the human brain <laughs> to some mm -hmm. extent. Um, I want to read just a couple of comments that have been coming in actually about Richard Power's overstory. Diane writes, was the author inspired by the overstory? The themes seem so similar. And Joel writes, truly fascinating topic. Sounds like it's out of Richard Power's The Overstory. And I, I think one of the things that uh, maybe people don't realize is that uh, you have been said to have been the model for the lead character, Patricia Westerford, in Richard Powers' novel, The Overstory. It won uh, the Pulitzer Prize in 2019. That's right, correct, Dr. Samar? Yeah, that, that is right. I, I, I didn't learn that until after. <laughs> but he, he modeled Patricia Westerford on me and a couple other people. Um, but certainly the research itself, um, you know, he talked about communication through the air. And I think he, he also talked about fungal networks as avenues for communication. So definitely that science, you know, the, the below ground part of it came from my work. Um, um, you know, other people have been studying above ground communication. They, they, they weren't women. They were mostly uh, uh, male researchers in California along the West Coast of the U.S. And they, they've done excellent work, Richard Carbon and his group. Um, and so that Patricia Resterford, you know, she studied that. But, okay, th those little 
you know, dissimilarities aside, um, certainly from what I understand from Richard doing interviews and writing about and speaking to people that I know, is that certainly the character was largely based on on me. And, um, and I, I think that's great, you know, that's bringing <laughs> science to the to, to everybody. Well, Joel's question went on to say, uh, how does this work square with forest fires and benefits mm -hmm. of fires? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, so I didn't specifically study fire when I was asking my questions, but definitely there's there's uh, revel relevance. So you know, most of our our forests along in in North America are are fire origin forests. That means that you know that they they've experienced fire and they've adapted to fire. Whether they're you know great big stand we call them stand destroying or stand replacing fires. Those are the great big conflagrations that burn through crowns. Some forests are adapted. They need that kind of uh, disturbance every you know hundred or more years. And then there's others you know milder forests, low severity for forest fires that you know just burn through the understory and take out you know the trees that are growing up underneath creating ladder fuels as as we we say in forestry that actually increase the risk of forests if you don't actually allow these these fires to go through because yeah the forest is adapted it needs those fires um and so but we have this issue right now in that we have climate change where we've changed we've changed the fire we call it the fire triangle, where um, there's three factors that, that determine whether or not there's going to be a fire. You need heat. And certainly with climate change, we have a ton of heat. We've got temperatures are increasing. And so there's a lot more energy in the atmosphere. Um, there's not just that the temperatures are hotter, but that energy in the atmosphere also is creating more lightning and more wind. Um, so you need heat. We've definitely got that. You need fuel. So we also have that because we, um, we've been suppressing fire for a long, long time and fuels have built up. And then the third thing is you need an ignition. And so I talked about um, more, more lightning, but there's also more human caused fires. And so, yeah, I can see that we're going to up for a break, but those three things were if we have great abundance and uh, really have set ourselves up for, for more extensive and severe fires going forward. Yes, I, I want to talk with you more about that after the break. We're talking with Dr. Suzanne Samar, Professor of Forest Ecology at the University of British Columbia, her new book, Finding the Mother Tree. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about how and why trees communicate with each other, how their relationships form a forest society. We're inspired by Dr. Suzanne Samard, whose new book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, is a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the science of plant communication or, or about the role of mother trees, as Suzanne Samard described just before the break? 
Have you ever felt wisdom or healing from visiting a forest? 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And just before the break, we were talking wildfires, and we have a question on that from Douglas in San Francisco. Hi, Douglas. Join us. Hi. Thanks so much for taking my call. It's a pleasure. So I have some property in the Boulder Creek area that we went through a devastating fire last year. This fire, prior to the fire, I was doing defensible space work where I would really alternate the species of trees that I would try to thin out through the land that I have. After the fire, given the heat of the fire, the conflagration, the soil has changed. It's like it's melted, and the trees are gone. It's like a moonscape. So I'm wondering if she could help me in this situation. I, I feel like I shouldn't go through my land and clear-cut everything that looks dead um, and that has been through the fire and really you know, is dead. I, I, I'm wondering, should I alternate in the trees that I take down based upon diameter, based upon species, mm. or should in this situation, since the fire was so extreme and so hot, should I just take everything down? And Douglas, thanks. Suzanne Samar? Yeah, no, don't take everything down. That's my first. So what's left behind is the legacy of the forest, right? Those structures, um, the carbon that's in them. There's still life in a lot of those structures, right? The old trees will hang on to their mycorrhizas for another year or two. Um, and they provide uh, carbon for the soil to, for the soil food web to eat, basically, to, to start cycling the nutrients to start. And once they start cycling things, you start to get soil structure. And that soil structure is essential in holding water. And so your soil will start to recover. But if you take everything away, you're basically sending it back to like it's a glacier or something or a, or a volcanic rock. It'll make it worse. So, so those remaining structures are essential for, for providing carbon, but also for providing bits of shade. Um, and then you can plant your tree, your new trees around those old structures and if there's any life in them at all uh, what i've found is that as these old trees are dying or um if they're not quite dead yet they actually ship their carbon through whatever mycorrhizal network they have left to the neighboring plants to the seedlings that you might plant around them so they actually serve many essential roles um they also are going to be habitat for whatever animals um and you know pollinators that you that you're going to need to recover the forest so leave what you have, and then you can also bring in, like it sounds like the soil was really, you know, really hit hard, and, and that's unfortunate, but you can help that, that soil rejuvenate. So one of the easiest ways to do that, and, and I do this, actually, I've worked in mine reclamation where, you know, we've got tailings, and it's a, it's a disaster, right? <laughs> There's nothing in there, um, but we bring in soil from the neighboring forest, and we use, just put a cup of soil in the planting hole, or half a cup, and that does an amazing thing. It provides that whole soil food web for the seedlings that you plant to get started. Hmm. And then also, you know, with respect choice of seed of, of trees, you do you do want to st stick with the native trees, right? Because they're adapted to those environments. But the, there are certain trees that are less flammable than others. And the less flammable ones... It, 
you know, they tend to be more deciduous trees. They've got more water in their leaves, um, less tannins. And so they don't burn as well so that if there is another fire coming through, they're going to be more protective. They also tend to cycle nutrients faster. Um, so I would um, don't make a, you know, a, a, a monoculture, but mix it up and have these deciduous trees in there to provide that uh, you know, mitigative effect to future fires and to help speed things along. Is what you're describing a part of post-wildfire cleanup and salvaging? Is that something that's being practiced on a large scale? Well, it is, you know, often it's the first thing people do. Like if there's, um, especially if there's value in the standing trees, you know, if they're not dead yet, or, you know, there's this impulse, there's even, you know, encouragement to go log these old trees uh, for their value, for, for turning them into wood products. But, you know, ecologically, that's the, the last thing you should do because these old trees are still contributing uh, enormous ecological benefit back into the ecosystem. They're what's going to bootstrap the next generation of trees. So if there's salvage logging, it should be focused on, you know, getting rid of the danger trees where there are people around. But otherwise, you know, a lot of these old trees can be left. Um, and you don't have to leave them all if you're worried about, you know, more danger in the forest, or if you're worried that they're going to carry more fire in the future because they're slash, you can take out some if you want, but you don't have to take them all out. And that's what people tend to do. And that's, I think, where people get, other people get really upset when they see, you know, that, that it becomes kind of an excuse for, for getting more value out of the forest. And sometimes they'll even, you know, I've heard stories, and it certainly happens in Canada, where they'll go in and they'll take out, you know, living forests nearby, um, just because it's there and it's easy to get and, and you can make money from it. But, you know, re, you know, resist that temptation, because that living legacy that those living patches are also absolutely essential to reseeding the next generation. Well, let me bring one last question in from Linda Palo Alto, I think also related to to post-fires. Linda, thanks. Oh, Maya. Okay, so I have three comments very quickly. One is, um, bravo for your book. I'm going to go read it. Uh, I had read, if you're familiar with Lab Girl, are you familiar Mm -hmm. with that? uh, Okay, so is she basing her studies? Yeah, is she basing her, um, because she was saying the toxins and whatever that are emitted from trees that are dying that are under the stress to warn other trees, both mm-hmm. above soil and below soil, send out these messenger toxin, uh, perfume, if you will, or uh, fragrance, whatever, and then mm-hmm. the trees and whatever plants absorb it, and then they go mm-hmm. into protection mode, just like what you're saying. Yes, so exactly. It's the same you know, thing. We, quite right about this intelligence people i want to equate um people human intelligence but plants and in order to survive all living things have a certain internal intelligence whatever Mm -hmm. it's called so Mm -hmm. uh the first so that was it lab girl and the other thing is i have a question do you think that with the stress both in environmental and in the soil with everything we've done um is the composition going to be right to support these trees that are not hundred year old trees but thousand year old trees in other words very dense tall healthy trees do we have any evidence that we can support in our environment going forward these kinds of trees linda thanks yeah um so the, the biggest these old trees um not only do they have this incredible storehouse of information in their seeds and and tree rings and so on but they also have deeper roots and thick bark and um, and so they're actually really resistant to fire. Um, 
the redwoods, the Douglas firs, you know, these, the biggest old, the big old trees are, you know, they, they're protect the rest of the forest against fire. They're, they'll live through those. They have lived through many fires in the past. And so they, they need to, we need to protect them to, to help them stick around. And then as far as the composition of the upcoming forest, you know, we have to be smart about this because we, you know, and we can be, we just need to pay attention to the land and what's happening on the land. Um, but, you know, climate is changing pretty fast. The velocity of climate change is much, much faster than the velocity of species migrations and ability to adapt. And so that's where people can play a really, really important role. You know, think of, you know, all of us together on this world, it's like this big microbiome and we all working together and people are part of forest too. And, um, and we can, be you know purveyors of good um, we don't always have to be the destructors we can we can also we can help these forests so so there are there's lots of information on you know what species belong on which ecosystems and then how they're migrating um, and so then you can start making choices about you know maybe bringing in warmer genotypes um, maybe warmer species even but usually it just means a a, a, a matter of, of migrating warmer uh, of the same species genotypes from warmer climates into your climate and mixing them with the natural regeneration of the natural forest and together they'll bootstrap themselves up and create a healthy forest um, but but the principles are you know stick with the local species composition as best you can try to migrate in some species that are adapted to warmer drier conditions and then let the ecosystem work together to create a new forest a forest that is going to be uh, there when, as climate is changing well, Sam writes, your guest's work is so important. I'm concerned that any anthropomorphism ascribed to evolution and how trees work could cause some to dismiss her work, which would be a shame. Have you encountered this, Suzanne Smart? Yes, I have. And um, yeah, I mean, I've heard this before. It, it is it, it is an easy way for people to, to dismiss work. Um, but here's my here's the thing. People have separated themselves from nature for a long time and to our detriment, right? We've put ourselves up as though we're superior and separate, um, that we're these objectives of observers of nature and we're not part of it. And this kind of thing is actually what's led us to the biggest mistakes that we've made environmentally. So by, by not thinking that, you know, by thinking we're superior, that we have dominion over nature, um, that, that we're not part of forests and ecosystems, that we treat them as though they're inferior, that they're just objects, um, that we don't even use words that we ascribe to ourselves because we think they're inferior to us. And then, you know, this, this idea of anthropomorphizing is a way of denigrating that science. But think a little more broadly, right? Aboriginal people around the world for thousands and thousands of years have viewed themselves as connected as part of nature. They view the trees and the whales and the, and the coyotes as their as their relatives, as our relatives, that there are tree people and coyote people and we're people, that we're all related, we're all connected, we are one together. By separating ourselves out and, and holding ourselves in this bizarre, you know, superior position, that's resulted in the decimation of the salmon populations, climate change, species extinctions. I mean, we've got to get a grip on this and don't denigrate science because you think it 
you know, it's anthropomorphizing. Look at why we're using those words. There's a reason for it. My reason is let's get closer to nature, realize that we're part of it. And once we, we get back to that, our roots as part of nature, then we can start healing the land. But until we get to that attitude, we're going to continue to abuse it to our own detriment. We're talking with Dr. Suzanne Samar, Professor of Forest Ecology at the University of British Columbia. Her new book is Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. One of the things that we didn't get to, but for people who do read your book, they'll find that um, it also is very much about your life, about the death of your brother, about the breakup with your husband, about your battle with cancer, um, and so on. One of the things that you said is that along the way, it became uncanny, almost eerie, the way my work unfolded in lockstep with my personal life, entwined as intimately as the parts of the ecosystem I was studying. And I was wondering if you could just for a moment touch on what you meant by that, if there is any specific experience you'd like to share with our listeners that really yeah. speaks to that. Yeah, there's a, it's it's. I wanted to write this book to show that because science really comes from our hearts, right? I asked the questions of forests over to, over my great concern over what we're doing to them because I grew up in the forest, seeing it as this incredible, incredibly connected, communicative, wise place, and we were treating it like garbage. And I I felt, and also um, I, I wanted people to know that science isn't some thing to be feared it actually it comes from a deep place inside of us where we ask important questions based on who we are and what our experiences are those are sometimes the most meaningful questions to ask and so i i I had seen my my work being talked about in different works like richard powers or you know or robert mcfarlane and so on and i thought that's great but it's not the story and i wanted people to know the deep deep story behind the science and that my my science was so deeply informed by all the things that happened to me in my life you know getting cancer inspired me to to ask questions of dying mother trees um being treated with taxol paclitaxel inspired me now to start looking at what makes the yew trees so healthy and to produce such amazing anti-carcinogens, which actually turns out to be a defense agent for itself? And what do its neighbors, the, the old cedars and maples, how do they influence the yew tree and how it produ- produces these medicines? So, you know, these questions came from me, right? Nobody was going to ask those questions from so- some other perspective. At least I don't think so. Um, yeah, that's why I did that. Well, Kyler writes, how do invasive species interact with the communication system? Are they speaking a different language? You know, they're so clever, those invasive species. (laughs) They have, you know, all these tools to invade ecosystems. Um, They can exploit these networks. For example, um, there were studies done on knapweed where knapweed was able to invade an intact healthy grasslands in the prairie. And the way they did that is they tapped into the mycorrhizal network of these grassy plants, the arbuscular networks, and basically sucked the phosphorus right out of those plants. And that created gaps in the natural ecosystem and allowed them to invade. Um, but, you know, if we once we know that, um, we can do a better job of managing these invasive species. Like if you see napwood, sorry, nap, 
weed or cheatgrass is another one that does that. Um, just get rid of them as quickly as you can. But if you don't understand it, you, you kind of get, you, you, you're not really poised to, to do the right thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, so the networks have, you know, you can view them as negative or positive. Um, they are a way of filling in space and ecosystems. Here's another example, and I know we're running out of time, but in the Arctic, um, and we've done studies on this, as, as the perma permafrost is melting due to climate change, we're seeing, you know, more nutrient cycling and the ability of, of shrubs like alders, and we studied Betula nana, which is a birch species. And it turns out that they're expanding over the Arctic and their mycorrhizal networks are actually facilitating that expansion. So Betula nana will send carbon through its network to other Betula nanas, reproducing further along the front line of the permafrost melting. And, you know, basically what they're trying to do is fill in gaps in the ecosystem, find balance, right? But, you know, it also has positive feedbacks that accelerate permafrost melting. So it's complex, um, but these, you know, these, these mechanisms are, you know, the, what their plants and fungi are trying to do is find that balance and heal the land and the soil. Are we, do we have enough time? How much old growth forest is left in our hemisphere? Where do you see this moment that we're in right now? Yeah, we're losing our old growth really, really rapidly. Um, and I think that there's like this misunderstanding, you know, that has been propagated through various nefarious means that old growth forests are old and decadent. We need to replace them with new trees because they're going to sequester carbon at faster rates. And it's just wrong, right? These old forests store huge amount of carbon. They have as much, as much carbon below ground as above ground and it's stable, right? And so we need to keep these old forests in place to, to, to store that enormous amount of carbon and to be homes for those old growth dependent species, because our lives depend on species diversity, too. And so, um, so yes, you know, th there is huge pushes all over the world in the Amazon, in the British Columbia forests, in the Oregon forests. It doesn't matter where you go in the world, there's going to be people trying to make money from forests. And we need to provide an alternative value. So maybe people can still make money by keeping the forest there, right? Maybe, you know, valuing it for its carbon and water ability to produce clean water. Those kinds of actions need to be made. Um, and, and we are kind of moving in that direction, but we need to get there faster. The book is Finding the Mother Tree. Suzanne Samard, thank you. And also thank you to producer Susan Britton for this segment. Thank you to our listeners. I'm Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.